Well, I want to welcome all of you to the 29th episode of the Montana DSA podcast. Uh, today is June 15th. Um, I'm Frank Kremkowski from Helena DSA. DSA is Democratic Socialists of America. I've been a member of DSA since 1982, when several of us from Helena attended the Detroit founding convention of DSA with the great socialist uh, author and writer and scholar, Michael Harrington, and the great uh, socialist from Butte, Mar Barbara Ehrenreich, who we met with and uh, helped to found DSA as a national organization. What is DSA? It's the largest socialist organization in the United States here in Montana. Uh, we have four chapters, Helena, Billings, Bozeman, and Western Montana, mostly the Missoula area. And back in the fall, the Montana Democratic Socialists of America Legislative Committee uh, started to work on some legislative issues related to uh, some of the referendums that were on the ballot last fall. And they also decided to take a look, a very close look, and keep track of things that were happening in the Montana legislature. So the first 26 episodes of our thing were, of our podcast series were about the legislative uh, events in Helena at the 2023 legislative session. Uh, but since that time, we've taken a look at other aspects of uh, current realities. Um, we've interviewed various people who are in the environmental justice movement and in, in the movement for uh, gay and lesbian rights and transgender rights, uh, women's rights, reproductive rights. Um, and today our guest is, is, uh, is a person that some of you probably know. Uh, he's the editor of an news, online newspaper called The Daily Montanan. Uh, our guest is Daryl Ehrlich from Billings, who is the editor-in-chief of the online journal, Daily Mo the, the Daily Montanan. Uh, Daryl is, uh, as I said, the chief in editor there at, at the Daily Montanan, but he uh, used to, for years, uh, be the editor of the Billings Gazette, which was the state's largest newspaper. And he's an award-winning journalist, author, historian, and teacher, and a wonderful person from my conversations with him. And his career has taken him, you know, from his hometown of Billings to North Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Utah, and Wyoming and elsewhere, uh, but those are the places where he's uh, you know, worked as a journalist and teacher, historian, things like that. So today, um, we're gonna talk with, with Daryl about some of the things that relate to the kind of work he's doing now, which is to edit a, an online Montana newsletter, newspaper rather, called The Daily Montanan. So I'd like, and to see what's what's happening in the, in the uh, newspaper realm in Montana and across the country. There are nonprofits that are emerging, as is the uh, Daily Montana, a nonprofit uh, news newspaper. There are non there are profit newspapers like the Independent Record, Billings Gazette, M the Missoulian, Montana Standard in Montana, and that whole arena of activity is something that Daryl is uh, very familiar with uh, through his work in those those days. And so I'd like to welcome Daryl Ehrlich from the Daily Montana to the DSA podcast. Thank you, Frank. Uh, and you're a, you're a wonderful person too. Uh, 
Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me on. It is a real pleasure to speak with you and your audience. Thank you. Great, great. So, Daryl, tell us a little bit more about the Daily Montanan. Sure. Uh, and its origins and what its connections are, its resources. And then sure. we can go on to talk about nonprofits versus profit newspapers. And that whole arena is uh, fascinating because we all want to find out what's going on. And in some cases, uh, we can't seem to find it. Yeah. So tell us about the Daily Montanan. What's it well, all about? The Daily Montanan is part of a larger umbrella organization, States Newsroom, um, which in uh, digital in the digital world uh, has been around for a long time, a whole like 10 years, which again, that does not, when you put our history up against say that of the Billings Gazette, which was founded in 1885, uh, 10 years seems but a, uh, a moment. But for us, that's a while. Uh, our original organization started in North Carolina by a couple of journalists who I uh, had kind of left, uh, you know, in one of the cuts, the newsrooms uh, and said, you know, someone needs to be really covering what's going on in state policy um, because there's a lot of stuff going on, but it seems like uh, traditional media is having a hard time covering it. So from that, the idea of state's newsroom was born. It spread to Nevada and then Arizona and then kind of grew organically. We are currently in 36 states and we will hit 40 by next year. So we're almost there. In the 10 states that we don't have direct affiliates, we have partnership agreements so that hopefully by the 2024 election cycle, we will have access to every state in the union and uh, sharing uh, content uh, cooperation agreements with those. We have kind of two levels. We have the statewide level and my job in Montana and the Daily Montanan is really fairly autonomous from uh, probably from a model that is used in say for-profit media. Uh, we are somewhat, we are pretty autonomous. So if you don't like the Daily Montanan's news lineup, it's probably Daryl Ehrlich's fault. I can't blame it on somebody higher up. Um, and we also provide, we also have three kind of really interesting um, ways that we augment and supplement our uh, kind of Montana or what we would say for Montana is local news coverage. We have staff members in Washington, DC that are credentialed into things like the White House and Congress. So that helps because obviously what goes on there affects Montana. We have um, national uh, a national reporting crew and they're topical based. So for example, we have a reporter who is covering democracy in America. And the mm -hmm. topic is what is happening with democracy? Because while a lot of things are changing, there is a, I think a rightfully placed concern on what is going on with democracy? How is, how is the state of our government? Um, and then we also, we've recently acquired Stateline, which was a, a longtime uh, attachment to the Pew Charitable Trust, which was their journalism arm. They do really interesting things, you know, so we're kind of at the state level and then we have our folks at the federal level, but there is a gap or uh, kind of an interesting band of things that are bubbling at the state level, but not all states. And they cover that. For example, we ran a story just last weekend that states that have some of the greatest housing uh, problems with affordability are also seeing a negative effect on population growth. 
So they're actually losing residents and they're actually not replacing residents as quickly as they die. And that's largely being driven be because people don't feel like they can afford to have children or may not have a house for children. So I thought that was brilliant reporting. It connected two things that you wouldn't think uh, population numbers with housing. So we have that. And so we have all that content, plus some other people like uh, Kaiser Family Foundation Health News that we incorporate. So in addition to our staff, we have four other staff members, so five staff members right now in Montana. We not only have our fellow organizations, for example, we have uh, uh, the Idaho Capital Sun, which is reporting out of Boise. So we not only can leverage our content from within Montana, but also outside Montana because we know that the news or the similarity of issues don't just stop at the state border. So we have that. And then for example, we are not gonna go to Wyoming, but we have Wyofile as part of the organization. So that's how we do it. We are a nonprofit. We are a nonprofit that is dedicated to state news coverage. That's really, so we're not trying to replace the IR. We're not trying to replace the Billings Gazette. We are trying to complement, supplement and augment those. So just in the last point, uh, supplement, augment, uh, what are some of the things that you're, you're, you say you are doing in the Daily Montana that the other newspapers are not doing? Is it uh, depth of your articles, investigative articles, or is it that you're covering in depth in ways that some of these local papers don't have the yeah. resources to do? Well, I would say yes. Um, yes, to some degree, I think Montana is really, when you look at what's going on, a phenomenon that we in the uh, kind of news biz uh, are, are calling, you know, much like you have food deserting, you have news deserting too, places where, uh, and that's happening at larger, you know, originally the, the prognosticators probably 20 years ago said it would be the small papers that died and the large ones that lived. And that kind of turned out to be wrong in exactly the opposite way. Some of the smaller weeklies survived and the dailies have really struggled. And that somewhat is tied to the corporate ownership versus who owns the dailies versus who owns the weeklies. Um, but we also have seen a diminishment of news coverage. Montana's doing well because it has groups like the Montana Free Press, which is another nonprofit news organization we're lucky to have. One of the things that I think about when I look at Montana is the Daily Montana is not trying to be the free press. The free press is not trying to be the Daily Montana. We're complementary. I think their interests are uh, are nicely aligned with kind of where we fall. And to to use a cliche, it takes a village. Um, we're going to do some of the same things that you're going to notice, whether it's the the Independent Record or the Lee Papers. We're going to cover those stories too. For example, HB2 yesterday, the big budget bill was signed. We had news of that. So did about every other media out there. And that's because we don't know where people are getting their news. We can't assume that they have a subscription. We can no longer assume that even television or radio is going to cover it. So we believe that's our responsibility. For the users of the Daily Montana and the readers, there are no paywalls and there are no advertisements. And so you can get to our news and, and get it read. That's only half of our mission. The other half of our mission 
is to provide that same content. So if you're a smaller newspaper and you can't afford, say, the Associated Press or you don't have corporate ownership, well, then how do you get legislative news? How do you get news out of the Capitol? And the answer is it's not easy because you hopefully are also covering your local city council, your school board, your county commission, and all these other things. So our content is available free to them for their usage with nothing more than picking it up and giving and making sure you include our byline. Daryl Ehrlich, Daily Montana, boom. It can go to any paper, not only in Montana, but outside. So part of what we cover is kind of the news of the day that you're gonna need. You need to know that we have a budget. You're gonna probably need to know what's in that budget. And then our other job is to try to get to some of the news that others can't because as news staff has shrunk, it just means that, you know, it used to be even when I started 10 years ago, we could afford to cut a reporter loose for a day or so to get on the road to go cover something and bring the story back. Right now, if you're a reporter in one of the, you know, we, we, we laugh about this a lot, Montana urban areas, which are towns that would not qualify in other states as urban areas. But if you're there, you're probably, you're not chained to the desk, but you're pretty close to local news. So how are we gonna get out in some of these rural areas to, to get at some of these issues, which are profound? in many cases. So we see our job as spreading out and in, in getting to those issues as well. And, you know, those are, those are along a predictable, I would say that the Daily Montanan probably follows a little bit more of a traditional newspaper format in far as, in, as far as what it covers. Um, we're pretty strong on government and policy. We're on social issues. During the legislature, we go into full legislative mode. We are, it's all hands on deck. Now that we're uh, now that we're post legislature, um, I think it's come as a shock. A lot of us thought in 2021 that there would be uh, that that was the high water mark for lawsuits challenging laws coming out of the legislature. I think 2023, if it hasn't already blown by, it will. So we're spending a lot of our time, for example. Um, a lot on the youth climate trial, the held versus state of Montana and Helena right now, we are one of two sources I know that is going that are going to sit someone at that trial every day. Um, I know a lot of people may flit in when there's some a larger name testifying or you know beginning and end of trial, and that those are all important. But we also believe that there's something to there's something to be shared about this process as we go through it. So we're gonna we're gonna be and that we have the ability to invest those resources in that way because we think they are important to the state. Yes, uh, that youth climate trial. I, I I've seen a couple of uh, articles in the Daily Montana about that. I was at the uh, first day of the trial here in Helena, and I was there this morning briefly. Uh, with about 50 other people greeting the 16 youth uh, who were coming in for the third day uh, that. And if anyone isn't paying attention to that trial, uh, they, they should. It's um, fascinating, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Uh, and just to backtrack a little bit here uh, about what people, um, you know, like news deserts, uh, ice put together on my Facebook page several years ago that one of my maxims and mottos is 
Frank, remember you lived behind a veil of ignorance. Uh, veil of ignorance was a term used by a philosopher back in the 60s, talk about how uh, we should approach uh, looking at ethical questions. But uh, I sort of adapted it and said, you know, Frank, every time you try to study an issue, you realize you don't know anything about it when you really get down into it. You know, there's a whole history of things, like the history that you mentioned in one of your articles about the youth climate trial, that this, the courthouse where the trial is now being held was a courthouse where another famous uh, discussion occurred, you know, well, it was 1899, I'm not sure. 1889, yep, the, where William Andrews Clark talked about the benefits mm -hmm of arsenic and sulfur and smoke and butte. Yeah. That, that, was, that was proof that Montana had come of age. And I, had, I didn't know that for sure. I, I moved to Montana about 50 years ago uh, and lived out in the Midwest and out in Pennsylvania for a while. But uh, one of the things I also tapped in onto that news desert uh, kind of thing um, is, is thinking back to a phrase used by a great scholar named Noam Chomsky, a socialist scholar, who used to be at MIT, now is retired and uh, still you know, prolific author and commentator and, and digger into facts, digger behind facts. But he said uh, that you could go, go to a, what you consider be a, a newspaper that had lots of resources and could dig into anything if they wanted to. But he said, if you could dig into the New York Times, this was back in 1976 when I read this article by him, he said, you could have you know, read that paper every day as he, Noam Chomsky, did every day from front to back. And it's not like the Billings Gazette or the Great Falls Tribune, you know, six pages or so now, really cut down to a very small amount of uh, paper. Uh, but he said, you could have read that every day and not known some of the worst things that have happened, the most important things that have happened. Or you wouldn't know that in the international edition, they said such and such, but not in the U US edition. So he said, you could be like an ostrich. You dig, your, you dig in there diligently looking for the truth and what's happening. And you come up thinking that you're gonna have something and you come up empty. And a lot of pe people feel that way about uh, lots of issues that they say, Frank, I don't have time to study all this. But when I do study, I find out that I, I really don't know where to go and I don't know how to dig. And I don't have the time to dig. I have to go to work every day. My three kids need their father and mother to you know, take care of them, nurture them, and put them to bed and make sure they're fine and you know, teach them whatever they, they really need. So when you say uh, we're, we're, you're covering the legislature, um, I know that uh, lots of my friends spent you know, hours and hours and hours every day at, at the legislature. Mm -hmm. They came back very discouraged by things that they saw, um, including one thing that you mentioned in one of your articles. It was a commentary, not a news story, but it was a story about the fact that the governor of Montana uh, was going to forego getting $10 million in food aid for summer feeding of children. And he said it was too much of an administrative burden. And I said to myself, well, I guess everybody should know that our governor said that, but it was in your article and a few other articles, including one that was also in the Daily Montana by my friend, Jim, Justice Jim Nelson, the retired um, mm -hmm. 
Supreme Court justice. Um, so you're a, you're a news reporter and a news digger, but you're also a commentator looking at these issues very critically. And your com I thought your uh, editorial about uh, Governor Gianforti was quite excellent. I wonder if you might just say a little bit more about that and how you how you decided to go after that issue. Because I mean, every day there was something outrageous that was happening at the yeah. legislature. But this one uh, didn't necessarily make everybody's headline. Yeah, you know, I think one of the challenges to, and, and I think Noam Chomsky was right. You can, you know, um, the, I, I was listening to a TED talk not long ago on, on how do we know what we don't know? Mm -hmm. Kind of the same. And um, the, the neuroscientist from, I believe it was Yale who was giving this said, the cruel irony is what is known is finite. What is unknown is infinite. Um, and, and that is true. And I sympathize with a lot of people who say that they don't have time for the news or the world is really busy because it is complex. But I think that that speaks to the necessity of journalism. Um, what we are paid to do, you know, and the Montana Supreme Court has actually said this when we fought public records trials, and it's such a beautiful phrase. Um, there's so much good case law in Montana on media and democracy. I think it really, it really, um, it really stems from our constitution, which is an amazing, amazing. Like the more I study it, the more I'm in love with it. And let me tell you, I don't always love it because the privacy stat, uh, statutes we run against, uh, we run up against that as journalists all the time. That's that's, uh, but in the balance, it's a beautiful, wonderful document, not only because of things like the youth climate trial, in which they're talking about these words that, that you know, our, 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 it not only says clean and healthful environment, but it says for future generations. That's so forward looking, like, it seems like almost like a throwaway phrase, but it's really, really important. So a lot of our case law, I think, comes from this really beautiful document that has very lofty yet understandable and approachable principles. And one of them is the public's right to know. And what Justice Jim Nelson and others have said is that the public, that journalists stand in the public's shoes. Um, in many of these places, whether you're at the climate trial or whether you're in the legislature. And you know, I really think that if, if you want a case for why you should support journalism, because inherent in or encapsulated in Noam Chomsky's uh, observations is a critique that the media is not necessarily the full story or is not comprehensive or maybe isn't telling you all the things that you need. And those are all probably true. Those criticisms that I take from Chomsky but I would also argue, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, or the enemy, yeah, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, and I think that the, the Supreme Court has said that Montana journalists almost always have standing to challenge public officials because they understand the media is standing in the public shoes. In other words, the, media, the public is too busy tucking kids into bed and may not know. So we need somebody who will watch and tell the rest of the folks. And that's the real danger. You know, when we talk about newspapers dying or media changing, or the what it, what it, where what is the role of the media or journalism? What we're really having a conversation about is are two things. 
what is the role of, what is a journalist role versus say entertainer? And then we have another question to ask, which is um, what, if, is this a value that we, is this something that we truly value as a society in more than just lip service? Because I think the average person would say, yeah, journalism is important. Yeah. Okay. And I do see the cat behind me on this. Uh, if you're watching on the podcast, that's just part we're of the We're welcoming the cat as well. Yes. Well, we have two of them in here. This is how I keep them from walking over keyboards. So, um, and I'm an unabashed cat man, so that might turn off some of the audience too. But, but I think the other question is, what is the value of journalism to society? Because I think, again, everybody would say, well, sure, it's a value. But I think if going back to 2020, the election, the January 6th, uh, and even before that, you see a increase in some of these, what I would call very anti-democratic activities uh, with a decline of journalism. Now, I'm not saying that those two things are causal, but I think that they are related. And I think that if we are going to uh, have a conversation about, about media, we need to start off with the question of what's the value of journalism? What role? Because I think a lot of people have said rightfully so, and I think there's no better case, quite frankly, than George Santos um, out of New York of what happens when the media isn't there or the media fails. But inherent in that is for a long time, we've just assumed that newspapers, television stations, radio would just be there at, almost as an article of faith. And you're seeing that you that's not the truth or that's not possible. And so the question becomes, if it is a value, how do we preserve that? And what are we going to do about it? And that's what we don't, that's still what's unknown. Now, it gives me great hope that thing that organizations like the Montana Free Press and the Daily Montanan are doing it. But our existence isn't vouchsafed, isn't vouchsafed uh, just like, the Gazette going back to 1885 is no guarantee that they'll be here in 2085. And I'm not predicting the doom. I'm just saying that for a long time, a lot of people may have been a little complacent about, about, their, about where journalism fits in. And the other thing that you know people now are worried about, well, will AI take over journalism, which is a, actually a legitimate concern. But the truth of the matter is I know that really getting to the questions that people want to know, finding that information, having to, in some cases, hound sources, and then compose the information in a way that's hopefully digestible and meaningful, that's an intensely labor-driven process. There's just not a lot of ways that AI, I think, can shorten that process. So we also have to countenance the fact that um, that information, especially information that's tailored to a specific audience like Montana, takes labor. It takes people doing this. And that's that's the real problem for us when we when, when it gets to because people are expensive and um, and the 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 process of building it can only be automated so much. You know, you're seeing automation with, for example, Missoula announcing and Lee and many papers announcing that they're going to fewer days of the print edition, which is sad because I'm an old print 
person too. I love a coffee and newspaper. When I smoke two packs a day, I loved a coffee, a smoke and a newspaper. Like that was heaven, you know? But, um, but I would also say that that is a format. You know, I'm not so worried whether we're gonna be printed on newsprint or electrons. I think the bigger challenge is going to be how do we preserve a place for journalists? And I know that sounds really self-serving because again, I, I get a paycheck from it, but even setting aside like whatever happens to Daryl Ehrlich, he'll be fine, but do we value this? And I think that that's a, still an open-ended question. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about as you were talking just now is that uh, journalists and historians, and you're both, um, ought to be you know, very closely allied because when you say you read a story about something that's happening in Helena um, and you write about homelessness or hunger in Helena or uh, almost any, any topic, it seems that in lots of cases, uh, either the journalists that, I, some of the journalists that I've read are, are very good at, at uh, knowing some of the history. Others seem to think that this thing happened yesterday and, and nothing happened yesterday. But I can recall, you know, just uh, when you mentioned the Constitution and what a great Constitution we have, the most progressive Constitution with greater rights for protection of the environment and our right to a health, healthy and clean environment, but also for, for saying that uh, people under 18 have the same rights and even maybe more rights if, if they're legally granted more rights. But I recall, um, talking to a lot of people here in Helena who were very shocked to learn that back in 1988, there was a constitutional initiative put forth onto the ballot by uh, one of the re Republican legislators at that time, which wanted to change one word in the constitution. And it was constitutional initiative 18. It changed one article in the original constitution. And the original constitution read something like this. The state shall, when people and its citizens are by reason of adversity in need of assistance from the state, the state shall provide assistance. And that was changed to the state may provide assistance. And that particular piece of the constitution was used by the Butte Community Union and the Montana Low Income Coalition to challenge various laws, but that's no longer in our constitution. So it doesn't, you know, the state does not now by, by its constitution have the duty to shall provide. Shall is not- uh, Shall uh, is not may. Not shall is not may. And one word, it's a major kind of, but, but, but I kind of bet that most people have never heard about Constitutional Initiative 18. I was part of the group trying to combat it in those days and we lost. And this is the wonderful thing about being a historian and a journalist. I didn't know that, but I'm I'm going back. I, you, I guarantee I'll probably be calling you, Frank, saying, okay, now tell me more about this. Um, that is both the wonderful and the scary thing about our constitution. And you saw it really in play in this last session. Um, it, it can be changed, which is beautiful. Um, and, I, and I love that because I really think that there is an understanding in democracy going back to the, the original, you know, a lot of people are shocked to learn that the US constitution didn't happen in 1776. 
Um, there were the Articles of Confederation. They're like, what? And uh, no, that was in Civil War. No, it wasn't. And, and so there are things like that that, that really um, make history enjoyable um, because it's nuanced and detailed and it's not as clean as you think. But I also think it was one of the things that I will say that's really neat about coming back home to Montana. And, you know, there's a lot, I know, Frank, you've lived outside the state and, um, and there's a lot of people who haven't. And uh, they say, you know, if things would just happen in Montana or in DC, like they happen in Montana, we'd all be fine. There's a little bit of tribalism in every state. I can say, having been a practicing journalist in six other states, they say the same thing there. And in place of Montana, it's just whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, But our state constitution is a wonderful thing. And I will say one thing that is different about living in other places is in most states, they don't realize that there is both a state and a federal constitution. When you, when you refer to the constitution, say, in, in another state, most people assume uh, federal, U.S. constitution. Um, in Montana, you have to be very specific. And one of the things that I still think is beautiful about Montana is that uh, uh, many people in this state are very proud, and rightfully so, of the state constitution and know it. And I think that there were some movements during this last legislative session to make changes, but they were kind of stopped because I think a lot of people are very comfortable with that. And I was glad to see that because I think despite the some of these culture wars, which I hope are, are, are brief, um, uh, that we don't need to go changing our whole constitution. And Quite frankly, there are two things that I think are still fairly um, well respected in Montana, the need for public lands and access of everyone to public lands. And then the second thing I would say, when one particular legislator, Derek Skies, uh, made the comment that it's, with all due respect to your organization, he did not mean it as a compliment that it was a, that the Constitution was a socialist reg. Yes, that was a bridge. I remember that comment. That that was a bridge too far. Uh, it really was. No one liked because I think even people who wanted to change the constitution would stop far short of saying it's a and and I'm not sure even I I kind of I think I wrote in a column a while but while back so I'm not telling tales out of school. I'm not sure how he even came to that conclusion other than and I've said this before. I think that if you just you know one of the uh, right-wing playbooks is just call something a socialist or a communist thing and and as a way to discredit it because i don't see any evidence that the montana constitution is socialist so or or communist in any particularized way that would make it open to that criticism i'd never heard it i've heard a lot of you know i've griped about its its privacy clauses because it keeps a lot of police records out of our hands so but in the on the balance it's an amazing document that affords some, you know, some some beautiful concepts that I think, in that respect, the U.S. would do well to follow Montana's lead. Yeah, the term socialist is thrown a lot around by a lot of uh, people. I, I like to keep in contact with you know people from all different standpoints. So I'm on the Montana Republican listserv, Republican yeah. Party listserv, and Don Clinch Schmidt and others regularly like Donald Trump. I'm on his, I'm on Donald Trump's Save America list too to see what kind of BS he's putting out every day. But uh, 
Blaine Schmidt and whoever's writing his, uh, you know, weekly uh, pieces from the Montana GOP constantly said there's a radical Marxist socialist and so forth. You know, they, they've never studied these issues. The essence of socialism, as Michael Harrington explains very well, uh, the great scholar, uh, Michael Harrington, who wrote the book, The Other America, back in the time of Lyndon Johnson, to call attention to poverty in the United States. Yes. Harrington, of course, then went on to form various other organizations, but, and, and wrote lots of books, but in his book, Socialism, he explains that the essence of socialism is to try to introduce democracy into culture, politics, economics, and every sphere of life. It's not in any way related to dictatorship. And so that thing by Derek Ski's, uh, it's just sort of a typical piece of fluff uh, memes that people are, I'm not sure if the meme is the term, but uh, you know, slogans that uh, don't really make any sense. But a lot of people um, still find that in Montana constitution, there's so many important things worth saving so that all of these, uh, I think it was every one of the proposed constitutional amendments was, uh, was defeated in this legislative session. Yeah, and there were a lot of, um, and, and I give credit to the Republicans here, they did a great job, many of them who saying, you know, we're just not interested in that because I think there was a lot of concern with the uh, uh, supermajority that they would, they would have an easier road to amending the constitution. And there was, I think there was rightfully, even there was even, I think, fear within the right that it was gonna go too far, was gonna um, clog up their other legislative priorities. And so I would, I would compliment the Republicans for really exercising a lot of discipline on, because I think constitu I think oh, um, at times we've gone crazy with constitutional initiatives and how much, and I, I think a constitution is something to be a little more thoughtful. I think laws that can be changed um, every couple of years are fine, but the constitution are words that we live at. And I really see it as a contractual relationship between a people and the government. And, uh, and I'm, I'm for hemming the power of the government in. Um, uh, or at least making it accountable and transparent. And that's really what our, our state constitution just does a beautiful job of. It, it does the best I've ever seen. And again, there are things that I want desperately and have had in other states as a journalist that I can't get here. But on the balance, it's, it's very good. And again, I think a lot of times you've got to be very careful in government. Um, perfect enemy of good. I think that happens all the time, as Lyndon Johnson said. Um, but I, I really do feel like the, the Republicans should be given some credit for at least some self-control on that, because I think there was a chance for a lot of things to, to be hurt. And I do think that Montana, you have, in order to understand our 1972 constitution, you have to understand the 1889 constitution and what was going on. And, and that's part of why I agree with you when you said, Frank, when you talked about people don't recognize that one of the big tragedies in journalism is I've been practicing journalism for 27 years and that makes me a, a veteran. But when I came into the newsroom, 27 years would have put me in the mid career mark. There were people who had been practicing journalism for a lot longer. And it's that institutional knowledge 
both in how to take care of our craft, but remembering the connections. Journalists tend to be really important because they can, they can connect some points that people may not know because they know how government works and they know how decisions get made. And so I, one of the things our organization does really well, and I'm really proud of it, is our, our pay scale tends to be a slightly higher than average. Um, we don't have as many people, but the idea really is also for our, um, uh, we want to keep staff here working happy in Montana, making a living, a, a, a living that they can live off of, not just a, a subsistence. Um, but we want them because we we want them to be able to connect those dots. And what's happened a lot in current media is it just doesn't pay well enough, or there are so many job cuts that people circulate in and out enough where people may not even have time to learn the Constitution. I think most of the time, as high, I've hired more than 250 journalists in my career, um, I usually say six months to nine months to get them up to speed. So some people don't even last that long at, so it's, it's really hard to get folks to connect those dots if they don't stick around. Yeah. And getting up to speed is really crucial because, you know, as I said, again, I live behind a veil of ignorance and whether we it's all do. any particular, you know, there were thousands of bills that were put forth in the legislature. And uh, I'd say most people like myself couldn't possibly pay attention to all those bills. So I was watching uh, various bills on, on homelessness, housing, environmental issues, uh, the rights and uh, re reproductive rights, the rights of transgender persons, uh, healthcare rights, things like that. Uh, but I depended on journalists to be digging into things that I had, I couldn't do when I was doing it. And not only journalists, but also people like uh, scholars who work for uh, the organization called the Montana Budget and Policy Center. Excellent. Uh, which was um, started by Heather O'Loughlin, who, uh, here in Helena and I've known her for years and she was a city council person here a while but one of her staff members Rose Bender wrote an excellent article which I'd like to see you know republished elsewhere it's it's at their website but it's it's called the racist history of Montana tax policy it's a very powerful brief good article by Rose Bender and she explains how um, some of the things that uh, happened in this uh, legislature were structurally related to systematic issues of injustices towards indigenous peoples in, in Montana. And I think a lot of people, uh, you know, like back in when I was working for the state of Montana after teaching for 10 years at various colleges and universities, I visited all the reservations as part of my work for uh, Department of Public Health and Human Services and the Department of Commerce. But I think a lot of people have never visited the reservations. I've been in on the reservations and I've also been in Latin America in the third world where tremendous poverty. And I recall thinking that the first time I went to uh, Lane Deer, I was going back to Peru in terms of the, the obvious poverty that was there. But I think a lot of people don't recognize that it's not just a matter of saying, well, yeah, there is probably a lot of poverty there, but Rose Bender in her article explains that 
a lot of these things were the result, a lot of the injustices and disparities are as a result of explicitly decided legislative policies concerning taxes and how they will be spent and how they will be gathered. It was a shocking article and uh, well, if you could publish that in the Daily Montana, you know. Oh, well, we'll take a look at it. People, yeah, I, I was, yeah. I'm always in yep. this. And people ask, how do you, how do you become aware of some of these things? It's, it's conversations like this. And that's why I think we need more journalists. Quite frankly, uh, I think you could, you could increase the number of journalists in Montana by a magnitude of 10 and still have them busy every single day. There's just that much news. And, and it's. It's tough and, work. And it is, it's, and it's really meaningful work because we we have to dig into those things. And I, I Rose Bender is as credible and the Montana Pol Budget and Policy Center is as good as it gets. And you know, we depend on some of those experts to really help us along. I know every year the Montana Healthcare Foundation comes out with the benefits of uh, Medicaid in the state. Um and it's a fascinating, and it's beginning to show how much it's worked for the state of Montana. Montana gets a, a great deal for, it spends about uh, a dime for every dollar that's spent on it. So it gets a really good deal from the feds, but it also, it's made a huge difference. And Montana is this kind of all the, and no one, we've tried to point it out, but for example, many rural hospitals have closed in America um, and they're, in states like Montana, you'd expect, but Montana hasn't seen it. Why? Because the charity care dropped, the the communities came together. So there are there are really good success stories, and um, you know maybe we're guilty. Maybe you can make the argument we were guilty of not um, not promoting that enough. Uh, and and I think that the other thing that we have to we have to do, especially during the legislature, is we need more people covering the legislature because there were there were hundreds of bills and we're still kind of um we are still now a month later more than a month later still kind of digging into what was kind of sent because there's always that you know what people don't realize too is it's if you see the legislature on TV, it looks like, you know, like uh, people portraying the legislature, it looks very orderly and stuff. And in the last couple of weeks, it's pure chaos and it's nothing like that. And it's stuffing through a lot of bills and you kind of figure out. So part of our job is unwinding that and then really saying, is this good policy? And that was part of, for example, my column that you asked about with uh, the governor. I think that part of my voice People ask why I don't pick on the liberals or the Democrats, or that, at least that's per, their perception. I guarantee you, I can give you some names of liberals or Democrats who don't feel particularly uh, probably warm and fuzzy toward me. So that's not always the case. But I think that one of the things that journalists really have a responsibility to do is to hold politicians and leaders to their words and the values that they express. And I think that that's part of what my commentary does. This is a group, for example, on that PEBT. Uh, this was a group of lawmakers and the governor who spoke a lot about the importance of, and primacy, really, of children and how we have these Montana's values and family values. 
and yet would turn down $10 million, the same 10 million or the same money that every other state and lo and behold, other states have learned how to manage the administrative burden. And I'll tell you what's interesting, Frank, is I kind of put out the question on my Twitter account. I kind of asked the question, if, and I, and I mean this seriously, if the government's job is not to protect hungry, starving, food insecure children, what is it? Because that was, I mean, I will say, I do believe the question. I do believe that the government's responsibility is in part, it's not to feed every child necessarily, but it's, if we have hungry, starving children, I think that to me, that's a compelling state interest. I think if you say that your family values I think that that, so that's what I was comparing it to. But I will say an interesting side benefit when I asked that, we had some fairly conservative people. It sparked a little conversation between me on, on email and on Twitter with folks talking about what is the role of government. And insofar as I would say there was no consensus in those conversations, but insofar as we were having that conversation, it was incredibly healthy because we were talking about what, what is it, I have a certain expectations or I have a certain way that I think government should behave or respond or react, but my neighbor may not. So let's, let's talk about where those lines are. And um, you know, some people offered that it was a church responsibility to which my, my response is great, but I don't know too many churches that are flush enough with cash to feed hungry children. There are some, but there are there are some, but for the most part, I mean, just on that point, years ago, I, I heard people saying similar kinds of things that the churches ought to take care of all those people who are homeless and and have poverty. And they, they, then I saw a research study that said, you know, you must not really know about what the research finance within churches and the, and the extent of homelessness, hunger, and poverty in the United States. We need uh, larger forces and the government well, and I, must be involved. I don't think it's strictly, I think also in that is a conversation about why is this a religious or theological problem? Um, hunger, and so I went to seminary and I have a degree in religion. So this is, a, and, and people are like you, and, and I say, I know, I know, I get it. Um, but I, I got to study under Desmond Tutu. And I, you know, I keep on coming, my favorite, and I said this in, in a previous column, um, he said, I don't preach a social gospel. Um, and that's because when Jesus was told by people that they were hungry, he didn't ask whether that was a, and, and they wanted bread. He didn't ask whether that was a political or a social question. And he said, because good news to a hungry person is a loaf of bread. And to me, I've, I, I, I really adopted that. And I think this, you know, I, part of me thinks it's a cop-out to say it's the church's problem is a cop-out because I don't think, um, no one has showed me how the churches were responsible for homelessness or hunger in the first place. So I don't know why the burden falls to the church anyway to help solve this. And I would argue that churches should be part of the solution and conversation. It should be a community so, uh, conversation. But so that's part of why I speak out. And I also think that part of the job of journalists is quite frankly, um, we have one of the 
most sacred, um, I think responsibilities, but it's more of like a trust, is that we get to sit and ask those very pointed questions of our leaders and we have a platform which we can use to amplify those questions. So I think the, the, real, the real conversation should center around how do we use that? How do we use it responsibly and what is responsibly? And um, I think it's fair to say when we walk away from $10 million and we have food banks reporting near record need, if not record need, how did that happen? It seems like a failure. And I would love for someone in the G4K administration to tell me how I'm wrong, how Montana would not benefit from that or is okay enough to survive, but I don't see evidence of that right now, especially with inflation, homelessness. I, I just, I think we could have used that funds. And I think that if we hire, if I think the state has, we all have paperwork, but the, if the state can't be troubled with that, it, it raises, I think it's at least fair at the very minimum to say, why not? Why? Yeah. Well, I agree. And I'm very happy that you wrote that article. Thank uh, you. Calling the governor to account to answer those kinds of questions, because um, it is the case that uh, people may not be aware of it, but, you know, hunger is a growing phenomenon in Montana, in, in Helena. Homelessness is a tremendous problem all across the state. It's one of the biggest concerns that people show and answer to in polls. Here in Helena, I talked to the housing navigator, navigator at one of our social service agencies about doing an article for, uh, for a newsletter at a local church that, that has committed itself to helping out in dealing with the housing uh, uh, challenge here. And that person told me, Frank, I want you to make sure that you say, you do not say we have a housing crisis in Helena. She said, why? Because we have a housing emergency. And then she showed me 20, 30, 40 files of clients that she was trying to help get into homes. And she said, it's growing all the time, all the time. And here in Helena, we have a coalition of people, which includes churches and uh, people from all sectors who are part of an organization called Moving the Needle on Affordable Housing in Helena, because it is a growing emergency and crisis here in Helena. And it's not something that uh, a lot of people, you know, you know really maybe know. Yeah. Last time, when was the last time you talked to a houseless person? Or yeah. last time, what was the last time? Well, or even on an issue like domestic violence. Women are being beaten up every 32 seconds, you know? And you find women on the, as I did uh, a couple of months ago, sitting on the curb at the sidewalk, crying, holding themselves. And stopped to say, what's going on? I just, my boyfriend just beat me up, she said. She's holding her leg in her head. And fortunately I was able to, you know, get a nurse who just happened to be in a building nearby to help out and then we got her to the hospital. But uh, as a former member of the board of directors of the Helena Friendship Center, which is the domestic violence shelter here in town, I know it's a tremendous problem, but a lot of people say, well, I, I don't know anybody who's been beaten up by their husbands or wives. I said, well, you know, it's pretty much a secret crime, but it's happening every all the time. And so in this case, uh, 
we need journalists digging into those spots where nobody else has the time to dig if it's very important. Uh, like to find out the truth about um, almost any topic. <laughs> Honestly, well, Frank, thank you for doing that. But also, I think that's absolutely what we, in fact, um, one of our reporters today is working on a story on the homelessness, the state of homelessness in these areas. And I honestly think that whether we're talking about hunger or homelessness or even employment uh, and underemployment, really, I think that's going to be a, a big issue. I think I think employment will come back, but it will come back in a way that doesn't that has people like kind of like before kind of pre-COVID working two or three jobs trying to still not make paying the bills. And we I think we all struggle at trying to um, I don't know one organization that feels a news organization that feels like even if they have the staff and uh, that they can grasp the magnitude of the problem, even in Montana, I mean, Missoula just put out an emergency and part of it too is that um, journalism often asks the question, what are we gonna do about it or what can be done? And some problems, you know, a uh, bridge washes out, we rebuild the road and re-engineer the bridge or look at a different route, right? I mean, the, those are fairly prescriptive. A, a forest fire burns and puts it out. We figure out why it did. We make sure that houses weren't burned or whatever. And then we, we say, well, we got to manage our forest better. But when it comes to things like homelessness, underemployment, lack of insurance, um, those get a lot harder because the answer, the problems may be, may be a little easier to define, but the solutions are maddeningly elusive. And that's what we, we, try, we, we struggle with too. I, I will say that uh, we struggle with this every day because I can't tell you how many times I've asked the source, okay, so what's the answer? And they go, well, we're working on that. Yeah, and so, those issues are extremely important. When you mentioned, you know, Missoula a couple of days ago issuing uh, emergency uh, declaration of emergency for for houselessness. I mean, uh, I shared that with um, our mayor here, Wilmot Collins, mm -hmm. and Helena to say, uh, hey, what do you think about this? Did you know that this was happening there? I've known Wilmot for 25 years since he moved to town, really, as a refugee himself from uh, Liberia years ago. And uh, he's a good, good man. Uh, let me say, you know, I wasn't criticizing him by saying I had to send him a letter. I know that he cares about people. Uh, a friend of mine who was, who was living in a trailer park that was infested with mold, um, who also cares about other home, you know, he's essentially homeless, and, but he couldn't, he couldn't deal with it. So I took uh, that friend to a meeting with Wilmot Collins, just to give Wilmot a break here. Mm -hmm. um, and Wilmot found out that this person who now had a section eight housing voucher uh, didn't have a car and didn't have a phone. So, you know, great. If you have a housing section eight housing voucher, you've got to call people who are um, saying I have a section eight apartment to, to do it. So he didn't have a phone. So yep. what did Wilmot do? He bought yep. him a phone yeah. right then and there. And, uh, and then was there a couple of weeks later when we finally 
were there with maybe 20 other people to help that person move out of his uh, mold, mold infested, infested yeah. to a Section 8 house it, you know, in a very nice place. But uh, that's a different thing. One of the issues that I wonder if is on your um, um, horizon at all uh, is the probable upcoming strike of uh, UPS workers. There's a, it's likely to happen, and I've talked to UPS drivers here in town, United Parcel Service drivers here in town who are thinking this probably, uh, they're going to be striking in August. And they haven't been talking a lot very publicly in, in town here, but nationally, the, the Teamsters Union, which is the union that represents the United Parcel Workers, are saying our company owners have been making about 2.5, $2.3 billion worth of profit last year, but they can't give us you know, better working conditions and better safety conditions, better insurance, better anything. They're, they're not budging on anything. And so it sounds like in Montana, as well as across the country, there is going to be a United Parcel Service strike. And I would think that that's going to be a big deal in Montana and elsewhere across the country. So, uh, and the reason I bring that up is that DSA nationally and here in Helena is committed to be in solidarity with those, with the union workers uh, who are fighting for their decent pay and decent working conditions. And if that happens in, in August, we'll be out there trying to find ways to support those uh, workers, our sisters and brothers in the uh, United Parcel Service uh, Teamsters Union. Yeah. I think it's going to be a big deal. I just heard over the lunch hour that they at least uh, conceded air conditioning, which I thought, well, that's oh. big. Um, Isn't that you nice? know, like, like, wow, that I, I assume they had it, but, but I guess I, you know, there's, and these are the kind of stories that are legion. And quite frankly, one of the things that we're thinking about, you know, in the future too, is um, the, the inequality gap, you know, there's always been a gap between the haves, the have nots. I remember, you know, that's that's a, a great term from the the kind of 60s sociology. But really what we're talking about, too, is the pressure that's coming to bear on working class, working families who are working very hard and just not being able to make ends meet, not because they're going on luxurious vacations, but the rent has gone up. Food has gone up. Everything is going up wage wages may have gone up but they're not going up fast enough um and these are the things that we think honestly when we talk about doing news stories every day frank we talk about how do we think about this and how do we get to these stories because um how do we put a face on some of these issues because i think a lot of times people think of news you know, maybe the definition of news is something that happened 50 miles away or more. It's kind of like an expert is someone who's just done that, but not local. Mm -hmm. uh, and we think about how do we get at that? Because um, there is a certain amount of a different kind of head in the sandism with our leaders. Um, one of the things that happens, I think, as much in Montana, if not more here, is the belief that because this is a really special place, which I completely agree, that only good, it's kind of like a, an idyllic worldview of Montana. But the truth of the matter is wages have always lagged. There's always been a, a, a so to speak, a Montana tax, and that tax is just lower wages. 
but now that Montana has been again rediscovered for whatever that means, um, we're seeing tremendous. You know, we're seeing people who were on the bubble being pushed well outside of it, and uh, so we're seeing homelessness. We're seeing we're seeing communities that can't find workers. We're seeing hungry kids. How do we illustrate that story? Because I think a lot of people also want to believe that these are um, people who are not Montanans. They're somehow transplants, which I don't love the idea of that either. And so we, we, these are the things that if you want to know what keeps me up at night, it's like, how do we get at these stories? How do we show homelessness? We need to talk about policy, but how do we also get to these people and let folks know that this is not someone who's spending all their money on drugs or booze, or, you know, we've got to fight that cliche that there are a lot of hardworking people who are just not making ends meet. How do we illustrate that as journalists? That's our, uh, to put it in theological terminology, that's our cross to bear. Yes, definitely. And here in Helena, uh, those issues um, that you just mentioned, all of them are, are coming to the forefront in these various groups um, that have been meeting on housing and, and homelessness and on uh, food issues, because uh, we're building a larger Helena Food Bank building uh, here in downtown, well, not exactly downtown Helena, but it's by one of our major intersections. But uh, Bruce Day, the director of the Helena Food Share, was uh, just talking to us the other day saying, you know, really, uh, we need this building because in spite of the fact that, you know, maybe everybody thinks it's getting better, the only thing that's getting happening is that the lines at the food bank in Helena are getting longer and longer and longer. And that is a shocking thing in the United States of America, but it's not new at all. Michael Harrington, as I said, uh, one of the founders of DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, was the one who called attention to Lyndon Johnson that we had tremendous problem of in the other America. And the other America was what? The poor. Uh, yep. And uh, shortly after that time, Martin Luther King started the Poor People's Campaign, which was a campaign of trying to call to the attention of our national leaders that we have tremendous poverty, hunger, homelessness in America in 1968. And now, of course, there's a new Poor People's Campaign and has a Montana chapter. Um, with uh, representatives from uh, various places across Montana. But the Montana Poor People's Campaign is another thing. And its efforts, I'm sure, will be uh, picking up soon because of all of these issues of homelessness and housing and hunger in Montana. It is a crisis. Uh, and it's a crisis mostly for those people uh, that we don't ever see uh, very much. But... Uh, also to speak from the theological perspective, which is a perspective I understand from my own background and tradition as a Christian committed to following Jesus. He said, whatever you do to the least of the brothers and sisters, you do to me. Who are the least of the brothers and sisters? The mikroi, the little ones, the ones who don't have food, who don't have a place to be safe to play, don't have a a good school to go to where their teachers will, will treat them with respect or their teachers can even treat them uh, because the numbers of students that teachers have to deal with is 
is way beyond what is possible to give individual attention to our students. Those are the mikroi, the little brothers and sisters that we uh, as Christians are supposed to uh, follow. Michael Harrington was a Christian democratic socialist before he was a democratic socialist founder. And I'm with you on those points. Um, Daryl, our time is just about up and I wanna give you a chance to uh, think about what you maybe didn't say or we're going to say uh, in response to some question that I asked or a question I, I didn't ask to give you well, the last word. Well, I appreciate it. First of all, thank you. And for those of uh, who have joined us and listened, uh, much appreciated. Uh, uh, this has been a great conversation. I love talking about how the, not the what we do, but the why we do or the how we do it. And you've given me, uh, you've given me a lot, you've given me some things to look up. I'll look up the Rose Bender article, but I want to, I want to say that what you've just said, I think is the most powerful and I, and I need to, I, I really like that. Our job, I think to, to piggyback off of something that you say, um, our job is to, first of all, be the, the people in the shoes at meetings where, it is important. People, I think, inherently recognize an importance uh, of being at your local school board or being at your your county commission. Um, we we serve that, and we want to serve that. I won't say that we love all of those meetings because no one. I I don't know anybody who goes, man. I just love a good long meeting. Um, doesn't happen. But what I'll tell you is that your definition of journalism is one of the best I've heard. Um, I think uh, to summarize it, our, our mission is to sometimes help people see the unseen, the people that they're not looking at or aren't looking in the right corners. And that is analogous to our search for information too. Um, a lot of people don't know these things or don't know how some of these things work. Um, for example, I'll never forget the school board candidate who came in once at the Billings Gazette and wanted to change a whole bunch of things, including Common Core without realizing that Common Core is something that's set by the federal government. So mm -hmm. if you want the Billings Public Schools not to follow it, you're, you're actually getting on the school board might be the wrong venue. Yeah. So part of our job is to help people see those connections, see the unseen. And uh, I hope we do it. That is not uh, what I always say, the really frustrating part about my job is I can describe it, but ultimately it's up to the readers and the, the viewers to decide how well we're doing it. But I wanna thank those. I, I know that there are uh, a lot of people who share our work, uh, who read our work. I wanna thank them. There are many supporters. I wanna thank them for that too. And there are many people who, uh, if they don't know it, I would ask just to check it out because I am, I gotta tell you, I am incredibly lucky and I will use the word blessed to do what I love. I love being a journalist. I love Montana care very much about the state and uh and i am i'm lucky to still be able to shine a light on on hopefully things that people need to pay attention to so seeing the unseen man if i can end on that that's a great way to to go out well that's cool daryl listen i want to thank you very much for uh, being part of this conversation today i've enjoyed uh, talking with you these are tough issues and and great challenges but uh well, that's what makes life really interesting too, because you know, if everything was just hunky-dory, as they say, then 
you and I could just go fishing every day and not worry about anything except proving that, I, you know, we're fishing, except that there are a lot of people who can't even afford a fishing pole. Yeah. And who don't have any food at home. And we don't know that they need the fish that we're going to get. So yeah. it's the kind of thing where um, if only we reach out to our brothers and sisters as democratic socialists uh, say we should do, um, we would uh, all be helping each other to make a better world. And your work at the Daily Montanan, a nonprofit uh, news uh, organization uh, here in Montana, part of a national network called the State uh, News Network. Um, wish you uh, well in your work and uh, I'll be reading you every day. Thank you very I, much, Tara. I appreciate it. Thank you guys. Thank you. Yep, bye-bye.